Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Dixie Cochran. Hello. Are we all going dramatic? Oh, I like it. Gothic and dramatic. And Eddie Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> But we are not alone. <laughs> we are not alone, you see, in our Onyx Pathcast today. Uh, we are joined by a guest. What? Ooh. A guest? A guest. The very best among the guests. From whence do they hail? I shall tell thee. <laughs> From over yonder, Pon Hill. Known, <laughs> known to thine as Chicago. Chicago? It's my kind of town, and it's Mike Tomasek. <laughs> Oh, hi. Sorry. I, <laughs> Where'd you that's come not from? Really, oh, uh, yeah. It's not really gothy or, or, or ominous. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm just. All right. Come in again. Come in. You know, walk off. The audience will wait. Just walk <laughs> off the stage. Come oh. on again. Do your luck. Deliver okay. it back. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Hold on. Um, Mike Tomasek. Hello. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> Very a little bit of goth, a little bit of Winnie the Pooh. It works, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know. What is wrong with us today? I'm just about done with this episode, so thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, (laughs) New World's One Pathcast. Yeah, Mike. Dun, dun, dun. Did you know that uh, sound effect in Friday the 13th, that famous one, that is apparently uh, its shortening of Kill the Mommy. Really? Yeah, it's supposed to. It goes, if you listen to it in order... (laughs) <laughs> it's got it's ka, 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 ma, 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 like that, oh. um, and it's Maybe. because that's what uh, Jason Voorhees' mother is talk saying to herself as she's going around killing oh. campers. Yeah, and it then sticks with the franchise, which of course loses all semblance. Anyway, Mike, you're here. Hey, I always thought it was just a them saying chilies, but I mean, whatever. I mean, it's fine. See, this actually works here because we're talking about a Hollywood movie, and we're here with Hollywood. Hey. Uh, uh, hey, ho. Um, that's where we're going to first start, Mike. Why do they call you Hollywood? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my nickname, Hollywood, comes from when I was in eighth grade. Um, I, went, I used to play football, and uh, American football, not soccer um sorry um and the coach saw me and i uh my glasses turned dark in the sun i've always had transition lenses uh you know little product placement here um (laughs) and so my glasses turned dark in the sun and the football coach was like hey hollywood and it traveled with me from high school to college to all my friend groups and do the fact that my name is Mike. And, you know, that was the most popular name in the eighties, I guess, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, I was just like, I might as well just go as Hollywood. And uh, since then, that's just kind of been my jam. Well, now we know. Now we know. The mystery is solved. <laughs> yeah. And that's this episode wrapped again. Twice in as many minutes. Can uh, I can I tangentially throw in another weird movie fact? Please sure. do. Just because you mentioned that and I thought of it, but I had to remember what movie it was. So in the movie Ghost, there's mm. those like dark shadow things that make really creepy ass noises, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is slowed down reversed babies crying. Ooh. No. Mm, that's, a, that's a nice sounding sound effect. I can't, as it were, picture the sound effect in my mind, but uh, I imagine it would sound lovely. It's a terrifying sound. Yeah. Mm. Is it like the the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park is something like the mixture of an elephant, a lion, and and a grizzly bear or something? The the kind of bear that actually makes a noise because most bears don't growl, do they? I I don't know. Apparently video games growl. Yeah, in video games they go like <laughs> horses or in TV and video games are always going, but uh, it's pretty uncommon for them to just do that spontaneously. If you play Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you can Spartan kick a bear off a mountain. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I do that all yeah, the time. Revenge for all the maulings in The Witcher and every other game where bears are inordinately more powerful than the hero when he first starts out. Or I mean, bears, bears were messing me up at first, but I'm level like 35, 36 now, and I can Spartan kick a bear off a mountain. It's pretty yeah. great. As yeah. you should. Yeah, someone right. should. Someone needs to put those bears in their place. 
Paranoid so why are we today. talking to Mike? Why is Mike here? <laughs> I don't know. We're what talking about blending our usual intro banter with the interview. It's it's, it's all very very fluid, very muddy. What's your favorite kind of yeah? What's your favorite kind of bear, Mike? Um, Joe character. No. <laughs> nice, nice. Aw, Joe. Joe's Um, I would have to say, uh, I see. You know, I thought of all the questions, and now you're asking me about bears. Uh, I would have to say a koala. That's not a real bear. That's not a bear. Yeah, it is totally. No, it's a no. marsupial. Yes, yeah, a marsupial. What? Koala bears are not actual. I, you see, oh, we're all you, you fool. We respect, the fact that, we respect the fact that it's your opinion, Mike, but it just happens to be wrong. I, yeah. I, I must be. Then I would have to go with the polar bear. How about that? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now we're back onto serious territory, the polar bear. Yeah, bear, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, because let's be real, bears are very serious business. Serious. Hmm. Polar well, bears have black skin and clear hair. That, that's they do. Understand. Yeah. It's like yeah. it's like translucent hair. It's not clear. I shouldn't say clear. Hmm. They're not Scientologists. No offense, I'm just going to throw out random facts about whatever anybody says today. <laughs> random fact, girl. Have hey, any of you awesome. played a werebear in a role-playing game before? No. No. I I, I was asked to be a part of a pack of werebears once, uh, but they were all... I didn't have a Hawaiian shirt, and they all wore Hawaiian shirts, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to buy a Hawaiian shirt to play a character. Sorry. Just buy a black, just buy a black button down and say it's a black on black Hawaiian shirt. They're <laughs> nice, I, I, they're rather cool looking. I heard, I've like, seen. It's a black shirt with black flowers. You just can't see them. That's yeah. fine. But you operate on a different spectrum. <laughs> yeah, you you need to get on my level of werebear. Yeah, or I just, have an ultraviolet Hawaiian shirt. Or just buy like a really cheap Hanes T-shirt and just write Hawaii on it in permanent marker. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I could have done that. Or know. suit crafts five. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, it, with my extensive history of LARPs, I did see a lot of Armani cards, Armani <laughs> crafts times five. You know, wearing like a pair of shorts. That's always. Shorts. That's always my hardest thing with LARP is when someone's hanging out in like jeans and a tank top, and they're like evening gown, diamond tiara, and I'm like, no. <laughs> like at, like at, at least go get a plastic tiara. Like they're they're three dollars eclairs. Like there's do a, do something. There's some LARPs uh, I know about. I'm not going to name because I don't want to advertise them. Sorry, LARPs that will <laughs> uh, that will award people more experience points for the 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 more plush their costume is. Well, see that's that's classist. I don't like that either. Yeah, I don't. I, I think like, it's. I think you can make a nod to it. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a plastic tiara. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, now that we've got the heavy subject of bears out of the way, it is a nice. Bears are heavy. Bears weigh a lot. <laughs> what about a cub? Random fact. I'm, I don't know how much bear cubs weigh. I'm going to look it up. Okay. <laughs> Actually, that, that leads me on to an interesting point. Sorry, Mike. I feel like I'm kind of pushing you out of the way. But here's, okay. here's an interesting <laughs> fact about dinosaurs. Yes. And then we'll get on to your favorite dinosaur, but not yet. Okay. Okay. So supposedly, so I understand, most of the dinosaurs we've been taught about in our childhoods, our sort of nebulous generation, have never existed. I don't mean this from some creationist standpoint, just to clarify. I mean that there's all these dinosaurs like pterodactyls mm -hmm. and diplodocus or diplodoci, I suppose, if there's multiple. Uh, never, never actually existed, and a lot of these, uh, the fossils that led to the assumption that these dinosaurs existed, were just younger or older versions of other fossils. Mm -hmm. The initial paleontologists that were cataloging all the different species of dinosaur were just looking at three-year-old dinosaur, twelve-year-old dinosaur, twenty-four-year-old dinosaur, and somehow deciding, well, all three of those are different sizes, therefore they're all different species. Huh. Yeah, yep. so that that shattered my dreams when I realized the pterodactyl never existed. I have a bear cub weight update. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I feel like we need a new sound effect. Urgent bear news. Uh, <laughs> bear cubs when they're newborn only weigh about 10 ounces. But oh. then when they come out of their den for the first time at like three to four months, they weigh four to six pounds. And Bears have this... Bears have the smallest young in relation to their adult size of almost any animal. Oh, oh wow. I want a baby bear now. No, no you don't. 
No. Also, as a side note, um, I'm going to ruin a lot of things for you right now, Dawkins. The whole, like, you know, science fiction, like a Tronosaurus Rex fighting a Stegosaurus, you know, mm. Fantasia and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that never happened. Stegosaurus and uh, Tronosaurus Rex never existed at the same time period. No, I suppose yeah. one's Triassic, one's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, excuse one. me. Have you seen Jurassic Park? Okay, I feel like there is video evidence of that happening. It's <laughs> happened now. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. There are like six Jurassic something movies. Six, yeah. am I right? Six, five? Sure, yeah, sure. I don't yeah, know how many Dick, Jurassic movies there are. Dickie Attenborough made it happen, I saw it, and I and I read the Michael Crichton book, where he's a much nastier character, Richard Hammond. Mm-hmm. All I've gotten out of this is that um, now it seems like four out of the five Dinobots are actually false, and that really bothers me. Yeah. Well, get, getting into whether actual dinosaur robots exist is <laughs> a whole different uh, I was going to say, Eddie, one of them is Triassic, that's the dinosaurs, and then one of them is Jurassic, that's the robots, and they couldn't have been the same thing. They also couldn't breed together. <laughs> I'm just shattered. My my illusions have been destroyed. GoBots, however. Oh, GoBots. Totally real. Totally real. I had a GoBots movie on video cassette when I was little. I remember there was a, a GoBot with a really annoying laugh. I don't remember much, but she could stomp her foot and create earthquakes. And she was a villainous GoBot. And, yeah, she had this <laughs> laugh. Is that, is that um, the one with the uh, Rock Lords? I guess uh, I probably watched it when I was about five or six. I um, yeah, but it stuck with me and put me off all robot-based cartooning. Hence, why I never got into Transformers. I feel so like our robots. I feel like maybe our host should ask Mike some questions about himself. Yeah, no, Mike, getting... what's your favorite dinosaur? Uh, oh, all right. Well, um, so I'm just gonna ask Mike, like five-year-old, what's your favorite blog <laughs> question? You know, this is nothing new for me. I mean... <laughs> All of our interviews to go this way. I what's mean, your favorite yeah. color? What's your favorite dinosaur? What's yeah. your favorite movie? <laughs> well, see, see, this is like this is some next level interviewing stuff for you guys. You We're just like, speed you know, dating at this point. Like, what's yeah. happening? Well, you're reviewing. You're reflecting on your interviewing skills, <laughs> and you're going, "What can we do to make the Pathcast just so much more kindergarten?" Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Let, let's. Let's blend those questions, then we'll get on to questions regarding industry stuff, you know, the boring stuff. So we'll blend those questions. What's your favorite dinosaur movie, and is it in black and white or color? Uh, okay, so my favorite dinosaur movie is, of course, the original Jurassic Park, because I saw it when I was a kid, and it yep. was awesome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, Dr. Grant was my hero. I had a, a button-down shirt that looked like his button-down shirt. Oh. Uh, I would dig in my backyard for dinosaur bones. It was my jam. Did you find any? No, but I found a bunch of rocks. And ever since then, I've loved rocks. So how about that? (laughs) It was was like a gateway drug. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Dinosaurs to rocks. Yeah. You know, it's like, ooh, (laughs) geology. Neat. It's like the rock claws from GoBots, right, Eddie? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Are you you kids studying geology? Here are the signs. (laughs) So you mentioned LARP, Mike. Did you get into role-playing first through LARP or tabletop? Um, So I actually got into games through tabletop. Um, I had a friend of mine, my buddy, uh, Joe Nalon. He goes by the name of Treetop because all of us in Chicago have nicknames. Um, he, uh, He worked in a game store. And I was wandering through, you know, being 16 years old or whatever. And he was talking with his friends about Legend of the Five Rings and all this other stuff. And I was like, wow, I really want to get into this gaming thing. It's really cool. Um, I like it's using my imagination. I know, but I, I just thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I get you. I was like, wow, you can use your imagination to tell a story? That's novel. Um, so, And these dice things. Look at this dice. It's so weird. And he actually was like, all right, so like, let's talk about like how it works and would you like to come and play? And I was like, yeah, I would, I would like to do that. Sorry, that's a train. I live by a train. Um, and he, he was like, actually, you know, you like more like, like rock and roll and metal stuff. 
uh, you should go check out this book called Vampire the Masquerade. And I walked over to it and picked it up, and I was like, oh, wow. I immediately flipped to the Malkavian picture, which was upside down. Um, yep. And I was like, wow, you can print art like that upside down? And it just blew my mind. And ever since then, I played a lot of Legend of the Five Rings, a lot of Vampire. And then once I got into college, a friend of mine was like, hey, did you know you can stand up and play Vampire? <laughs> what? <laughs> what a selling point. Right? Yeah. I was like, wait, like you it's, could like walk around vampire, and talk but to people. vertical. Exactly. <laughs> um, and Petition instead of to call all LARPs vertical tabletop. <laughs> yes. From now yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. It just like levitates. You know, it's just like, oh, Ooh. here's this is this is a woo. This it's is like a... it's like virtual tabletop, but it's vertical tabletop. Exactly. Yeah. This is a great product idea. As opposed to laying down tabletop. Right. As opposed to sitting tabletop. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Stoner tabletop. Yeah, just hey man, roll that d20. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like walked around, and of course I made a Tremere because I was like, I'm a burly academic. I like magic. Hmm. And the rest is history, as it were. Would you say that your first character being a Tremere uh, has directly informed the way you've gone on to play characters badly in the future? <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> Funny story. Uh, funny story. Um, oh when I was doing a lot of my LARPing, I would routinely berate other Tremere players <laughs> because I was like, you know, we're supposed to be prim and proper. We're an example of the Camarilla. Uh, like, you know, we're supposed to look and sound knowledgeable. And you are wearing a fucking cape and a top hat in 2000 Chicagoland. What the fuck is your problem? <laughs> I feel like I had that exact same conversation with just regular goth kids. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You know, get your gas mask off, kid. Like, what are you <laughs> doing? It is, it is 98 degrees outside in North Carolina in August. Like, why are you wearing vinyl pants? Right. Because you can. I guess I don't. I don't know. Because no. you want to be I'm, for anybody that has not worn PVC in the summer, it is a nightmare of a sensation. It does not breathe. It is the worst thing. Also, fishnet breathes less than you think it does. Really? Like a, no. a long sleeve fishnet shirt, not cool. Like literally. I, I've never worn great. either. I'm what kind of vampire player are you? <laughs> No, I'm the kind of suit wearing. Uh, you know, I don't really need to role play. If I'm if I'm taking on the role of a Ventrue, I just sit there and be myself. It's a very <laughs> easy. It's a very easy role playing life that I lead. Anyway, sure playing Nikita in the, our, our uh, Princess Gambit game. Yeah, then I just get very frustrated. Why is no one listening to me? <laughs> <laughs> because you're a Caitiff. Yeah. Womp womp. Yeah. So you transitioned, of course, from playing these games and running these games to writing these games. Yes. Uh, how, how did that happen? Well, um, so I was storytelling a lot. And when I was LARPing, I, I found that I really wanted to help facilitate play, um, which kind of correlates with my educational practice. I really enjoy allowing people to play what they want to play and guiding them within a context of rules. So storytelling and, you know, and the organization that I was in, um, unfortunately, just was like, I'm sorry, you can't. And one of the rules of improv, if you know anything about improv acting is, you know, yes, and. Yep. And I was very kind of concerned. I was like, this is making people not want to have fun. What's a way that I could have fun? Um, maybe I can try to find out a way to write games. And I, I'm not going to lie. I never, ever, 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 ever thought one day you're going to be able to write role-playing games. If I came up to myself as my 16-year-old self holding a vampire book in a game shop and was like, hey, kid, you're going to be able to write games one day. 
I'd first of all go, who are you, mister? Um, <laughs> <laughs> bad touch, bad touch. Uh, uh, but also, I would have never thought that this would be a possibility. Um, and yeah. I, always I always find it to be a blessing, and um, I'm very thankful for it. I've, I've definitely said the exact same thing about myself, like, on, on this podcast, even, where, like, I think I think the one that like kind of smacked me in the face when I was working on it was Changeling 20 because I, I played Changeling in high school and just being like, you know, 15, 16 year old little baby off Dixie would never have thought that her name would be in one of these books, let alone like 50 of them. Like, right? what? what? Like, this is nuts to me. Yeah. And then, you know, like it was it was actually really funny because I had to be kind of pushed into it. Um, Matt McElroy was like, Hey, you should apply. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. Um, you know, thanks. And, and like a day went by and he was like, no, I'm being serious. You need to apply. You need to get this to me by tomorrow. I want you to be a part of this project. Mm -hmm. And I applied and started from there. And the first thing I wrote on was, um, uh, the Dark Eras Anthology Companion. Mm. And, er, yes. Yeah, that was the first thing I believe I wrote on. And um, I had no idea what I was doing, and I <laughs> am trying desperately to continue learning about that process. Yeah, what would I you mean, mean... Oh, sorry, you go ahead. Us, I was going to say, I think, I think some of us would even say we're still learning about these processes. Because <laughs> every now and then something pops up where we're like, oh, that does make it easier, or... Oh, I didn't realize you did it that way. So, yeah. Do not feel really. alone in that, Mike. You are not alone. <laughs> I don't think it's appropriate these days. Anyway, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> tell us. <laughs> uh, so, as, you, as you mentioned <laughs> that you are still learning, what were your biggest stumbling blocks when you first started writing? What would you say were your, the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome and indeed may still be overcoming? Sure. Um, so I have ADHD. When I look at a block of text, it literally just blurs into nothing. So when my developers at first, you know, Matthew included, and, and Matt McElroy, um, when all of that began, you guys were like, hey, you should check out a style guide. <laughs> and I was like, yes, moving on. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, I have no idea what any of this means and I don't know what I'm doing. And I guess one of the biggest things, of course, that I had the process of learning is asking for help. Yeah. Um, and I'm still learning how to do that. And it's it's difficult for me, um, but I know that it's something that I'm a lot more doing a lot more now, um, thankfully. Um, and also learning just about the style guide, learning how to not write in passive voice. That damn damn passive voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. Uh, also, just like I actually, to tell you the truth, when I first started, I was just kind of taking from whoever was around me. I learned from Eddie. I learned from Matthew. I learned from Matt McElroy. I learned from um, Monica. I learned from, uh, I learned just from anybody and everybody around me to try to do this thing that is creating stories in a really proper manner. Um, so to answer your question, basically the biggest stumbling blocks is asking for help. Mm. I, I, I tell any, I, I, anybody who's a new freelancer or developer, just talk to people. Um, and that can be intense, um, but uh, we have to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and also just kind of reflecting, reflect on what you are getting in your red lines and all that sort of stuff and trying to make it better. Um, right now I have, I'm literally staring at it uh, on my wall. There's my rules. You know, I have like, you know, follow the style guide, no double enters because the APA format was beaten into me in college. Uh, you know, like learning how to speak in the Onyx Path style, I guess, was my mm -hmm. biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and uh, to to say again, you weren't alone in that. There's, and you you won't be in future. There's a lot of writers who will go through the exact same uh, issue, and I think it's a perfectly normal phase of learning for a lot of people. That, for one thing, there's sometimes the attitude I'm best off giving it my best shot without. Uh, without asking for help because there's the misconception that asking for help can make you look well weak or like you're failing uh, and yeah other people just lack the confidence to ask some people uh, just feel like they're best off going with their instincts there's, there's a lot of reasons people might make uh, some mistakes on their first drafts but I think it's the 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 true tell of whether a writer is improving is whether they show signs of that improvement on subsequent projects. And not that this is a one-to-one review. Hi, Eddie and Dixie. Uh, <laughs> but... Okay, this is not an interview anymore. This is now your yearly review. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I need some papers to uh, stack together on a desk. Uh, but you know, tell me it... of your five-year goal. Yeah. <laughs> what does the word communication mean to you? <laughs> Uh, but you my... tell that Matthew used to actually do that. Yeah, <laughs> I was a team leader. Uh, but no, my, my, my point being that you have shown marked improvement on those issues. And the very fact that you have a list up by your monitor is the kind of thing that benefits almost all writers to have a visual cue to remind yourself not to do the same things you did last time that got called out. Uh, and yeah, if you can learn from that, then then brilliant. It means you're improving. Matthew's oh. just got a five foot banner that says betting shops don't exist in America. Yeah. <laughs> seared, yeah. seared into my brain. I don't need yeah. the banner anymore. I've <laughs> trepanned myself with those words. Well, we do have off track betting, and in Illinois, we have video gaming. Right. So, I mean, you know, you Which just is... need to get in with the weird betting culture of. Something I, I don't. Yeah, know. and to be clear, video gaming is actually different from playing video games. It, yes. it is video-based slot machines and the like. It's a whole separate legal category. And it was super confusing when I talked to my lawyer early on. I'm like, I'm making this game. It's like, oh, so it's gambling. I'm like, no, it's about dogs. It's like, you should gamble with dogs or horse dog racing. It's like, no, it's not dog racing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very weird and and very shiny. They, there's lots of like lights and flashing lights and stuff that are associated with it. It's just weird. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like, you know, and th thank you, Matthew. I, I appreciate that. Um, no, you know, I, I think the one thing that, you know, I, I always say to both my students and to anybody who asks about writing, it's like play to your strengths. You know, like I know that I'm a visual learner. I like looking at shiny stuff and highlighted stuff. Uh, you know, like my, my Geist 2 anthology has a bunch of highlighting stuff over it in my document because it just helps me focus, you know, and whatever helps you create, I mean, don't be afraid to use it. You know, that's what mm. it's, it's a cool thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, you mentioned you're developing a Geist book. So what can you tell the listening audience about that product? Uh, well, first of all, uh, first of all, first of all, um, I have, I, I, first off, first of all, uh, I have to ask uh, Eddie a question. Uh, oh, no. Is it about Geist? <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, Eddie, what's going on with Geist? Uh, do, you do, do you know anything? Um, Actually, before we go into that, I, I, should, I should explain that joke. Um, uh, what happened was, uh, when, that was like one of the first years I went to Midwinter, like second or third year, um, and, and we were doing a panel interview, and, and, and Mike is a huge, huge fan of Geist. Um, and we didn't have any guys announcements at the show. Um, so Rich and I were there doing a panel and, and uh, then so Rich said, okay, do you have any questions? And Mike raised his hand and I was like, anything that's not involved guys. And Mike puts his hand back down. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, I, I love guys. It's, uh, one of my favorite Chronicles of Darkness, uh, worlds. Um, one and one of, one of, I do have a few. Um, and I am, uh, the first time ever developing an anthology, well, co-developing with uh, Matt McElroy, um, the uh, Geist second edition anthology, which is going to have heavy influence of the new Reapers, as it were. Mm. Mm. So um, it's been a very interesting learning experience um, 
because it's very different from freelancing. And uh, I loved it. It's been a really fantastic experience, but it has a whole new set of challenges that I really wasn't expecting, to be completely honest. And uh, it was very similar, truthfully, to teaching. So oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. How so? Um, so when you're teaching, you're building a lesson plan and you're building your curriculum and you're kind of creating a scope and sequence. It's like, you know, islands that you want to get students to, right? Um, and you help them and you, what we call scaffold them um, to their new place of knowledge. <clears throat> and when I was developing, I was like, I, I'm learning how to develop while learning with you guys to write. So it was interesting to create those islands and kind of go, okay, so like we're gonna create a pitch and we're gonna create um, your first draft and then, okay, I'm gonna learn how to redline and then we're gonna redline together. And uh, I, I, it was hard to use only text to convey what I wanted to see from stories. Mm. Uh, because I, I love talking to people. And so if I ever develop again, uh, and I learned from, you know, when I was, while I was doing that, I was also writing. So I was learning from Matthew, what he was doing. I was looking at his documents and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Maybe I, I could have done that. And, um, and like I was learning from, uh, Matt McElroy, like, hey, you know, like, you got to be more descriptive. You need to explain and give examples. And I was like, oh, just like if I was teaching something. Um, so it was like this very beautiful creative experience that I was very blessed to have. And I'm still kind of finishing up now. So um, it's a lot of reflection and kind of learning what I would do next time. And um, I really hope fans like reading it because there's some of those stories are scary as hell. Well, it's interesting you kind of bring up that connection because um, I have often said that uh, tabletop role-playing games are really uh, um, have more akin to textbooks than a lot of other styles of book production. Um, uh, they're, they're usually textbook size. Um, there's a lot of text to try to communicate concepts to people. Usually there's ex descriptive examples or charts, um, but you're doing it all in a very flavorful way. So you have to get a blend of fiction and you're basically, you're basically teaching people about concepts that don't actually exist. You're, you're teaching about this fictional world about that and the rules of this game. So um, it's interesting to hear you talk about how you see those connections and, and that's something that over time, maybe we can all kind of figure out, okay, what kind of lessons you learn from the education side can help us to better communicate concepts to people in these books. Absolutely. You know, um, we mm. tend to, in education, kind of go like, oh, well, like, this is the thing, take the thing. Uh, did mm -hmm. I fail? You know, did I fail at teaching the thing? Right. Um, and within tabletop, are we allowing that play? You know, mm -hmm. uh, one of the one of my favorite education books is called uh, you, uh, you Can't Say You Can't Play. It's from um, an author by the name of Vivian Paley. And it's about small children and younger children like doing the, hey, you can't be a part of this. Mm. And in tabletop worlds, I, you know, I, there's a lot of times where you go, hey, you know, you, you can't do this thing. Right. And. And that comes a lot of times from newer storytellers or newer people that don't know the world or they can't roll with it or whatever. And I, I always try to, when I'm writing and when I'm developing or when I'm doing anything to try to go, your world is yours. I'm not going to say you can't, right. you need to be able to do this thing because that's going to facilitate that next level of understanding, that next level of learning, that next level of uh, visceral play. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important as as a writer and a developer to go, hey, like break down as many barriers as possible. And I wonder if, because I know one thing I've noticed, particularly with Pokemon, but with a lot of the projects I've worked on, is um, people feel like they can't do it. If they run to a block, they have to get the official answer. They have to get 
an answer from me or an answer from Onyx Path or whatever. Um, yeah. to, and it, it, it's weird because it's like, you know, there is this long legacy of just people making things up as they go along. Um, so, you know, say, no, just, we want you to, like you say, play within the world, try new things. You know, we can't say you can't do it. We're just saying that, you know, for the products we're making, we're not necessarily exploring that topic or what have you. Um, so I'm curious, it's it, it, interesting to me that, you know, there might be some parallel between how people were educated and how they're now approaching these games and going, oh, well, this says I can't do it. So I guess I, I, I just can't because the book officially tells me I can't or whatever. Well, I mean, there is. And you see this with students as well as players. There is a type of person, and, it, and it's a legitimate style of play, that if it says it in the rules, the rules are important. The rules shape the world. Um, and at that point, it's very important to go, okay, yes, the rules shape the world. What can we do? And put the question back on them. What can we do to make your answer better? What can we do to make these rules better? What would you be comfortable with? Um, I also believe that this boils down to a lot of our educational system and gaming. People get, you know, kind of burnt out or they get used to their style of play or whatever, where they don't want to divergently think about something. Um, mm -hmm. They just want to go, hey, uh, a paperclip is just a paperclip. A paperclip can't be a lockpick or a paperclip can't be like a cool little thing that you play with or Allowing people to say, I'm going to do this thing mm -hmm. and going, yes, how are you going to do that? And guiding them to that point is the impetus for all play. I mean, that's kind of helping people get what they need from play. Because remember, also, it's, it's play is essential to humanity. Mm -hmm. without, without it, we don't learn. So we got to allow that we got to facilitate that and allow people to do that. Otherwise, if you say no too much, people just shut down and go, well, I don't want to do this or I'm just going to do it this way because I know that this is right. So going back to what you said with people asking for the definitive answer, mm -hmm. um, I would I, in, in my personal opinion, I would put that answer back on them and say, well, what do you want it to be? Right. You know, it's what do you want from that? Yeah. But 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 it is interesting to see the 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 parallels in that, and it's something that I think that um, I will say older White Wolf books, older World Earnings books, sometimes got a bit dogmatic. Uh, sometimes you can't play this, you can't play the spot, you can't play these bloodlines, what have you. Mm. Um, and it's something that over time uh, uh, we've gotten better. Onyx Path has gotten better about trying to give options or saying, hey, we're not ready to give you that area, or you could do this, but here are some of the dangers if you explore that option. Yeah, um, that's actually that's 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 something that's been coming up in Exalted recently when we're talking about some of our uh yeah, storytellers guide we're working on. Mm -hmm. Um a lot of Exalted players want to have the Yozis be let out in their games. Just that's that that's a thing, you know, they're locked away if they want to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not a great idea, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um but but when folks were talking about it, the initial conversation was kind of like, we should tell them that that that, that they can't do that. And I was one of the ones who kind of came in and said, let's let's be gentle. Let's say you can do whatever you want in your game, but here are some of the consequences. And that way, if players still want to do that, they can. But it's still probably a terrible idea, you know. Um, so that it's 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 about how you frame it. Like you can yep. take a role playing game and do anything with it. It might not be as fun as you might think it is if you do it a certain way, but you should be totally open to trying whatever you want to try in your, in your own game. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that like, there should always be consequences, right? I mean, there's yeah. like, it's like, it doesn't mean you just like, okay, you did the silly thing. <laughs> like, lol. Um, <laughs> no, like, there should be like, okay, you want to do this dark thing or the, or open up this world or do something crazy. Sure. You're going to have consequences. But that's what play is about. Play is providing a safe space for you to do something dumb or silly or dangerous and imagine it and, and say, okay, what would be the consequences to, uh, for, uh, for example, uh, a Tremere just joining the Sabbat in, in V20 or something like that, or like, you mm -hmm. know, something along those lines, like what would be the consequences of, 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 you know, uh, infiltrating, something you know like there should always be that like okay if you want to do the dumb that's awesome let's do it but mm -hmm. it's going to be hard yep absolutely 
Hmm. Well, as we've been speaking, we've been speaking a fair amount about Vampire at Play, and um, we mentioned, of course, the book that you're currently developing, and you speaking to Eddie about your love for Geist the Sin Eaters. Something we often ask our guests on these episodes is what it is they particularly love about a game, and uh, sometimes, you know, going so far as to how would you sell it. And I guess my my thinking on Geist, Geist isn't always seen as, I guess, among the, the top, the big three of Chronicles of Darkness, uh, but it's a fantastic game in its own right, and I know you think that. So how do you pitch Geist the Sin Eaters? What is it you love about that game? Oh, that's <laughs> that's a really wonderful question. Um, <laughs> I I pitch Geist much like I pitch Vampire: The Masquerade. Um, it is a story of ethics. It is a story of life and death. It is big, beautiful, broad concepts that you get to muddle your way through. Um, with Geist, it is a celebration of life and death. It's a look at the darkness that surrounds our world and the liberating freedom of beating it back. Um, and I, everyone loves a good ghost story. And I always tell people with Geist, things can haunt us, be them physical or mental or anything along those lines. And... Because of that, it's like talking to those ghosts. And it, it provides a level of play where you can go into some really, really deep places in your own psyche and go, how do I, how do I beat this back? Or, you know, say you lost a loved one and you want to talk to them. You know, you can create a ghost and play with that ghost and play with that story. Um, and again, that boils down to play. It boils down to the therapeutic nature of play. And, mm -hmm. and I think Geist allows that a lot. Hmm. That's a lovely answer. And on the subject of some other books you have in development, or rather books that you are writing for, um, you know, we, we can talk a little about some of them. Uh, so books like... I don't know, uh, Chicago Folios, for instance, and <gasps> Cults of the Blood Gods. Yeah. yeah what um, have your contributions been to these upcoming V5 products? Chicago uh, so, Night first. Oh, and What's Chicago, that? of course. Chicago is coming for How could I even forget Chicago by night? Let's start, oh, yeah. Let's start with Chicago and why you were the right person for the job. Uh, well, um, because <laughs> I um, for Chicago by night, I'm not going to lie, I, I did a dumb, I, and I fully admit that I made a mistake. I was a little – again, when we're writing, right, it's all about communication. And I really wanted to be a part of Chicago by Night, not even for the, for the title, not even for the anything. It's just that it's my city, and I grew up here, and I love it more than anything. I've worked in it. It's my, it's my home. I, I could have I mean, been given the audience. Uh, uh, Mike has a tattoo of the Chicago flag on him. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I do. He um, has a geist tattoo. I do. Yes, I do have a, I have a torn tattoo on the back of my leg as well. Um, Which don't exist uh, anymore. I know. Womp womp. But that's okay. I'll get another <laughs> tattoo. It's fine. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just wanted to be a part of it. And I didn't know how to do that to be honest. And I was just like, I was talking to Eddie and I was like, I, I, I get really passionate about things I love. And I was like, Oh, Eddie, I just don't know what to do. And I don't know how to be a part of this. And I, I just, I really, I, I need to, I, I should have asked, how do I do the thing? Mm -hmm. um, and Eddie was like, you know, well, we'll, we'll figure that out. Like, you know, no big deal. And then the next day, Matthew was nice enough to be like, Hey, would you like to be a part of Chicago by night? And I was, I almost cried. I'm not going to lie. Um, because I literally had been using that book, that copy of that book for years in LARPs, taking ideas from it, making it real. Um, so the opportunity to be a part of V5 Chicago by night was 
a dream that I, I would have never, ever in a million years thought I would have the blessing to, to be a part of. And I'm very, very thankful for it. Um, at first it was Matthew asked for 10,000 words. And then about a week later, you asked me for 20. <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. Yes. <laughs> um, it was the largest project I'd at that point I'd ever worked on. I'll, I'll cut in just to say the deadline wouldn't have changed. The, the greater demand under uh, yes. a shorter time frame. Yes. yes. Yeah. It was only, I think, a little over a month um, to write all of it. And for the first few days, I was like, okay. And, and then Matthew kind of explained, you know, during the, within the document, like, okay, you're going to build Chicago. And I was terrified. I'm not gonna lie. Mm -hmm. I was like, I was like absolutely terrified. I was like, how do I describe Chicago? How do I even do this? So I like sat around uh, and stared at my ceiling a lot. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Like I, I, I uh, when I'm trying to create stuff, I try to make myself bored. Yeah. Um, um, because then you can kind of like extrapolate and be weird in your own head. And um, I thought. Why not the Chicago flag? And I was like, what does the Chicago flag mean? And, you know, the chapter that I helped write um, was the city chapter. And it's describing Chicago. And it was also the fact that Matthew was like, just so you know, no pressure. But the thing that you are going to establish may be used for all of the V5 city books <laughs> moving no forward no pressure or nothing um and so i was like okay i'm just gonna freak out into a bag for like five minutes and then, <laughs> that sounds about right that sounds fair yeah you know I, I screamed at the sky a little bit and i was like okay i'm better now um Moon. but um because within the world of darkness the city or the place that you're working in is so essential. I was like, okay, how do we reflect that? And basically I looked to the Chicago flag. I mean, the Chicago flag is based upon, you know, the, the great things that happen in the city, the great places that happen in the city, the, the land itself and any uh, uh, geographical um, portions of it that make it great. And I was like, okay, here we go, <laughs> you know, and, um, I uh, basically just was like, okay, these are the beautiful parts of the city. It was it, uh, writing for Chicago by night was my love letter to Chicago. Mm -hmm. It is my, this is everything that I love about this place and everything I hate about it and everything that I want to be better. And all of the things that I've seen as a, as a early childhood educator in the city and all of the, you know, beautiful people trying to do great stuff with it. Um, and I hope that that comes through in the writing. I, I want people to know that the, the person who wrote about Chicago loved Chicago. And I will always love Chicago. You know, it's my home. That's lovely. Yeah. And, well, and that is why... Mike was the right guy for the job. It was uh, very important that someone from Chicago who loves the city dearly got to write about the city itself. And yeah, uh, I think it's it's a strong chapter as a result. Uh, but your work goes a little more esoteric when it comes into some of the stretch goals and, and subsequent V5 books. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've had a primary focus on the Church of Cain, haven't you? Yes, indeed. Um, so when I was LARPing and as just a player and a fan and as a writer, I desperately wanted to write about the Sabbat. I love the Sabbat. I love it. I love it. I love it. I feel like it gives such a deeper set of role play um, than our normal, like, I'm going to, Screw you over Camarilla politics. I like the religion. I like the the ritual. Um, some of my favorite things ever have been doing like sermons of Cain mm -hmm. circling other human beings, like screaming at them about stuff. And I was like, cool, I'm going to uh, 
I want to do something about that. Um, within, well, I don't, and I, I could talk about a little bit about it, right? I don't want to like, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 go uh, ahead. Like um, um, uh, uh, just for the caveat for the audience, uh, some things discussed in this podcast might be subject to change pending uh, paradox approval. Yes, yep. very true. Um, with the new world that V5 is in, the Sabbat have become something more fearsome, more horrifying than we have ever seen before. It puts the fear back into the world of darkness in that world. It, it's like, oh, there's first light, you know, going to bust in your door. And then there's these things that are just psychopaths, I mean, that are horrifying. And the thing that I saw was my favorite style of play within Vampire the Masquerade disappearing. And I was like, oh, this makes me kind of sad. Uh, I, I want this style of ritual and this, this world to still live on. So what I did was I asked, I was like, hey, um, can I do the Church of Cain? Can I make the Church of Cain do something different? And Matthew said, sure, go for it. And so the Church of Cain is going through what a lot of the groups in Vampire, the V5, are doing now. They're doing marketing for themselves. They're changing how they look. They're doing, they're the nicer, gentler, murderous Church of Cain. They're getting focus groups. Yeah, they're getting into all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, I... I, I, I know that a lot of fans are going to go, I, I don't know if you did this right, but I really want you to know, just like in Chicago, as it was my love letter to Chicago, my writing in Call to the Blood Gods is my love letter to the rituals and the horror of the Church of Cain. It is, I tried to make it as brutal and miserable and horrifying as possible and make them useful again. So, yeah. Yeah, it's um, for, for anyone unfamiliar, people may have heard of the Cainite heresy <clears throat> in Vampire the Dark Ages. Uh, I don't really think they appear in Dark Ages Vampire so much. Uh, there is a difference to, to anyone yes. who's unfamiliar. Uh, but obviously, the Cainite heresy being a faith based around, in very much a long care at Sanctum way, the idea of them being chosen. Uh, chosen predators and Cain being positively angelic and something to aspire toward. Uh, that's a group that was stamped down in Vampire the Dark Ages in a major way, hence why they're called the Cainite Heresy. Uh, heresies don't tend to call themselves heresies. And they appear in a form in previous versions of Vampire the Masquerade as nodists within mm -hmm. the Sabbat, uh, the, the scholars, the researchers into the Book of Nod and other such esoterica. But the ecclesiastical hierarchy of the Church of Cain is never really separated from the Sabbat in previous editions because the Sabbat is almost fundamentally seen as a religious organization uh, in the way it's structured. Now that it doesn't really have that, so much the church of cain still exists but it's its own entity and uh, the church of cain is pissed mm. uh, and it, it's looking for a home and in some camera domains it may well be that a prince or whoever the leader is sees the benefit of having a church on site and uh especially a church as strong a vampire church as strong as the church of cain who has all these uh, trappings and rituals already in place they're not forming they are one of the most ancient organizations within vampire society so to have them around is is a form of a blessing in a way you can say look at who we've got back in us uh so yeah mike's been doing quite a lot of work on them on in both chicago folios uh, I think we allude to their presence in Chicago by night. Uh, they are expanded in Chicago folios. I think they've got a firm presence in Joliet. Yes. Uh, and uh, which, again, for anyone unaware, is a uh, well city outside of Chicago. Um, and 
likewise, they are profiled in a more uh, religious way rather than a structural way in cults of the blood gods. So yeah, that's 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 going to be a bit of fun. And uh, before before we leave vampire entirely, I was going to ask uh, because another group you've introduced, another cult you've introduced, are the Ashfinders. Yeah, yeah, the uh, Ashfinders. Yeah, can you tell the audience anything about them? Sure, I could talk. I could talk about the Ashfinders. Um, the Ashfinders are everything that is awful about the internet. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Ashfinders. So, my when I started writing the Ashfinders, I was like, okay, why does the Camarilla hate Thin Bloods? Um, and other than just, oh, you know, they're bad. No, they're, they're, oh, these guys are just, oh, oh, my goodness. Because really, in the genre of that world, it's like, okay, well, the Camarilla, for the most part, is detached from Nadis lore. So why would they give a fuck? Like, it's just another person to mess with or another person to use. Let them be. And I was like, why don't we give them a little bit more teeth? So the Ashfinders are a religious institution that is all about enlightenment, which is a fine veneer cover for Golconda. It's a different type mm. of Golconda. Um, and what they do is they want to release you from the jihad. They want to just say, you know what? You don't have to be a part of this. You could come over to us and we will help you learn the way. And for the most part in the lower echelons, they, of course, are doing that. They're helping people, you know, leave the Camarilla or do all these sort of things and just kind of providing that fence, uh, false sense of security while having a highly mechanized and weaponized social media presence. Um, they are influencers. They are all about showing people what they can and cannot do. They're everything that makes neonate vampires horrifying. And they use social media as a weapon against elders. They use it against uh, any of their enemies, uh, anyone that messes with them. Um, they play really well with the masquerade. Mm. Um, and then, of course, because, you know, it's the world of darkness, they also have found out that if you mess around with Thin Blood Alchemy and you dab add a dash of necromancy, you can create this new drug called Ash. And it can give you the memories and the powers of dead vampires. Yikes. So now these now the Camarilla has a fear because they've realized that these people can kill them, consume their knowledge, consume their powers, and then go back and get more. And the cycle of addiction makes an appearance and these guys are real crazy and really messed up and i love them and i want them to be scary and make any elder shake in their boots uh that these little neonathan bloods can get real bonkers really fast well that's lovely mike uh, and uh as i see we are nearing the end of our interview mm -hmm. uh, dixie well, do you have any questions for mike I think we asked most what we were going to as far as, uh, you know, Gaith Anthology stuff and Jago stuff. Those are all those are all my suggestions earlier. And Eddie? What's your favorite ghost dinosaur? Uh, favorite ghost dinosaur would have to be a spooky brontosaurus. There you go. Why I'm didn't the... dinosaurs leave ghosts? They Maybe did. They did. Spooky, spooky. We just talked about that. But but right. only but only dinosaurs can see other dinosaur ghosts. Right. See, oh, that's yeah. how it works. Okay. All right. Uh, Good to know. Oh. Okay. Okay. Jurassic Park so, be hella haunted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totes. Totes. Somebody haunted. write me a geist story set in Jurassic Park where your geist is a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Or the moon. The moon's haunted. Get it out of the moon. Haunted. Moon's on it. That's one of my favorite memes. I can't. Every every time there's like a like a a, a really bright or full or big moon, I just kind of look at it. and I'm like, moon's haunted. It is. We know it. They're coming for us. 
Mine the moon goes... is damn scary in that Legend of Zelda game, the one that was on the N64. Which one was that? Where the, where the Yeah, where the moon is uh, threatening to crash into the earth and it has that nasty face. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. It's Homicidal moon. Hence moon's haunted. Yeah. Uh, there is a power in Mummy the Curse where you can basically drag the moon down and smash it into your opponent. It's one of the ways in which the game gets a little silly. What? <laughs> yeah, they just like essentially put one exalted charm in Mummy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Eat this moon. Take it. It's a way to build a cult and destroy everyone else in, on the world. Uh, so, Mike, <laughs> if people want to find you on social media, if if you're into that kind of thing, I don't know. I where would they go to uh, to keep track of what you're up to? Sure. Um, well, I don't really have a social media presence. I'm not really into the Twitters uh, um, or Facebook. I'm going to be making a Facebook writer page for myself soon. Ooh. Ooh. Um, but but you can find me on mftomasek.com. So m-f-t-o-m-a-s-e-k.com. Where I have a sweet website. Sweet, sweet. You should call your Facebook writer page Hollywoods. Ooh. 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 Lots of oohs at the end of this one. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, means this is a bona fide hit. Wow, Eddie yeah. liked an, an idea I had. <laughs> that never happened. I have, I have to like some of them to kind of keep you off balance. Usually yeah. I just run up and I'm like, Eddie, hear me out. <laughs> it's Hugmire. <laughs> but on the moon. Hugmire on, the, on moon. the moon with porgs. <laughs> I, I'm seeing a bit of a sort of uh, Peter Parker, J. Jonah Jameson relationship here, with you rushing into Eddie's office. He's there champing a cigar and said, "Look at the look at the article I've got." Yeah, but give me Spider Man. Where's Spider Man? Come on, Dixie, Spider Man. Yeah, hey, only pictures of dogs. Only instead of Spider Man, he's saying, "Good ideas. Give me good ideas, Dixie." <laughs> <laughs> Those are ideas. That that is true. <laughs> Dixie, where would they find you if they wanted to look? Uh, Dixie Cyanide, most places, or DixieCochran.com. And Eddie, before you give your uh, your details out, I have a question for you. Oh, we were talking about dog races earlier and gambling. <laughs> right. you know, uh, which dog would you put your money on at the four forty? Um, <laughs> no, in Pugmire. Yep. Gambling. And Ooh. what kind of creatures would the dogs in Pugmire race? Because I know obviously there are dogs that aren't uplifted, but right. I don't know whether they would think it's uh, vulgar to place a bit of plastic yeah. on other dogs racing. So what I do you think? I feel like that would be like humans betting on like monkey racing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, or I'd watch monkey racing. I'll be honest. Oh, monkey racing. <laughs> Well, there you go. That answers that. Uh, they they no, use but I mean, monkeys. No, dogs. Dogs. Um. Uh, uh, there is some. They have a lot of the relationship with uh, canines that we do with dogs. Um. So you know they have them as companions, they as friends. Sometimes they have racing. Uh, they don't really go as far as like say dog fighting. Um. But uh, yeah, there's there's dog racing and um. But cats like canine racing more than dogs do. I just had a thought. If but, there's monkeys in Pugmire, there could eventually be humans again. Dun dun dun! But like, but like the Anthrothal level humans. <laughs> so we got a way to go. And then dogs and cats would go, that's weird, but we just get rid of that. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> Why are those monkeys talking? Yeah. They weren't uplifted by man. <laughs> give, give them a different corner of the world. Sorry, it's it was just a really weird thought that I had. I was like, I was like, oh, monkeys are still around. <laughs> <laughs> they could eventually evolve. And by that time, dogs will have like, you know, all kinds of cyberpug thirty thirty. All right, get It's also Planet of the Apes. Uh, it is Planet of the Apes, literally. I know, but but the, there's people there. I don't know. It's a whole thing. I'm sorry. Well, if you want other Pugmire rambling, you could find me online <laughs> at uh, eddiefate.com, um, eddiefate uh, at Twitter, e d d y f a t e, or at my corporate uh, sites, which are my company sites, I should say, uh, pugsteady or pugsteady.com. Dot ink. Dot ink? No. Because you're corporate. Ink I'm not corporate. Ink. Actually, I do have a corporation. <laughs> I the great Inkwell Corporation, ink.ink. <laughs> yes. 
And you can find me on MatthewDawkins.com and you can find me on the Onyx Path YouTube channel. And of course, you can find me here on the Onyx Pathcast along with my fine, fine, fine co-hosts. Not Mike, usually. Sorry, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> and if you, are, if you are listening to this all the way up to this point, please do leave us a rating and a review and share us around. I know I asked that a couple of episodes ago as well, but it's very important that uh, we are recognized for our greatness, he says, with no small amount. <laughs> and with all that said, many worlds, one path cast. Mm -hmm.